This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. You're listening to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, considering a career change, Barbie's box office bonanza, and what's new, Pussycat. But first, September for many means back to life, back to reality. But for our kids, it's back to school back to basics. Just last week, the province rolled out its first set of measures aimed at getting back to the fundamentals of learning by strengthening reading, writing, and math skills. So what does this mean for Ontario public school students, and how will the classroom look come September? Joining us with the details is Patrice Barnes, MPP Ajax, and Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce. Welcome to the feed, Patrice. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me on. So back to basics. It's all part of Bill 98, the Better Schools and Student Outcomes Act. How will this strengthen the fundamentals of education, things like reading, writing, and arithmetic? Well, we know as a government that parents want it to be really centered back on children, their children's education. We've heard that over and over and that parents are feeling sort of um, not included and they're worried about, you know, the fundamentals of, of reading, writing and math. And we've seen those decline um, in our scores across across Ontario. And so this will really get us back on focusing on the real fundamentals, the foundational pieces by which our students can build a future future education and future career on. So is the onus then on the teaching staff to step it up a little bit, or are we now focusing on the school boards and how they are mapping out their students' education? Well, we're focusing on the boards, we, and you know we do that because you you've probably experienced it too. That you have some schools, some boards that do well, and so you have students that are graduating that are doing well, and then you have other school boards and other schools that are are oftentimes very low in their academic performance, and so. What we wanted to really focus on and drill down on was, you know, getting those pockets of excellence across the system so that a student, no matter where they are, no matter what their socioeconomic is, that they get a a foundational uh, education focusing on those fundamentals on which they can really build uh, future skills and uh, careers. Can we unpack a little bit of Bill 98? For instance, it demands transparency from the board. For instance, again, PD days. What do teachers learn? Why is that important and why has that been overlooked? Well, they do post it somewhat now, but um, what we want really is for parents to feel and understand what teachers are learning. And we've seen somewhat, you know, we've seen controversy about speakers that have been into boards. We've seen uh, controversy about topics. And so with this, with boards being able to post that, I think it gives them the opportunity to really get a feedback on what parents are thinking and what teachers are also want done. So this is really um, working to be collaborative with parents so they do feel a part of their their child's education, that they do know what their teachers are focusing on, what is the priority for school boards, and what they're doing on those PA days. Attendance is very important, and again, this bill is asking boards to to reveal the number of students attending classes at least 90% of the time. Yes, and we want to make sure that we are tracking because 
if a student is not in class, then a student is not learning. And so when we are forced to look at the data, when we are forced to look at the numbers, then we, are, we are also get to focus on what the issue could be. Can we, are we having conversations with those students? What are the barriers that are keeping them from class? And then that being, because they are, should be centralized to their education, and so we need them to be in school so they can be successful. Math and science is very, very important when it comes to education. So, again, the board is responsible for revealing how many uh, grade 11 and 12s are studying science and studying math in grade 12. Why are those so, such important bits of information, and particularly for 11 and 12 grades? Well, this is the grade by which students are deciding what their future plans are. And we recognize that we do have a shortage of um, women in, in, in science. We do have um, a shortage of women in um, math-based careers. And so being able to track this information will also help us to determine what needs to be changed, what needs to be tweaked. How, how are we looking at students that are doing applied math versus academic math? And what are their pathways that we are, we are offering? It's also important because even with our new focus on our science careers and our skill trades careers, math is very important in both of those. And so, you know, as we have this particular focus on skill trades, uh, we need to also recognize the foundational pieces that need to be in place for that. And is it the responsibility of the board or of teachers to confirm and, and try to achieve future success when it comes to their students by providing skills needed to succeed in life? I think it's both. And, I, and that is why the minister really wanted to be able to set priorities because we want to make sure that students are succeeding and not to the point where if you, are, you have a class that you have um, 20% of your students that are failing or 10%, then, then what are we doing? What are we looking at? What do we change? How do we support those students to be successful? Maybe we need to put in additional supports. Maybe we need to um, retrain how that teacher trains, teaches math. Um, you know, math has been one of those topics that has been in the media for so long in regards to how it's taught, how students understand it and how parents are even able to help their students or their children to, uh, with math homework. So it is such a focus because confidential, when you're more confident in math, you are willing to try so much more things. You know, it's interesting what we, we have been discussing has to do with the tail end of a student's education, uh, grades 11 and 12, high school. Let's go back to the elementary level, what does the Better Schools and Students Outcome Act do to provide greater support and, and transparency and clarity when it comes to our little ones, grade one, grade two, reading, writing, and arithmetic as well? We are focusing on supporting uh, the elementary level as well because we are pu put in our math coaches. We're committing to looking at um, performances of different schools, sending in additional supports for those schools, having math coaches that will go in and, and uh, work with a teacher that is probably having a challenge in a classroom that is not successful. Because as you say, we, are talk we talked about the high school portion, but the fundamentals in elementary school is so important. If a child hates math in grades three and four, chances of them doing well in math in high school is so much different. A teacher has 
such a great impact on that. And that is why we want to make sure that they're totally supported and that they are able to really ignite that learning in students from elementary school. Now, you've already touched on this student engagement and well-being, supplying a safe, supportive learning environment. A lot of that has to do with mental health. Where does that figure into all uh, that we are talking about and Bill 98? Well, we have, we rolled out the curriculum where we um, students will be learning mental health um, education in grades 7 and 8. And it's also interwoven in the curriculum starting from kindergarten, understanding how to handle uh, emotions, understanding how to handle stress, but sort of giving students the tools that they need to really uh, navigate the portions and putting in place uh, supports where students now have and know there's somebody there that they can call, there's somebody there that can support them, and giving teachers too not making them mental health professionals, because that will take uh, time, but giving them also the support to support themselves and to actually have conversations with students that are having challenges. Patrice, what has been the reaction from uh, school unions to this? Well, the unions last week who came out, they were um, not really supported of Bill 98. But we do think that, you know, we are focusing on this based on the reactions of parents. We have really committed to parents to sort of involve them in their students' education and for boards to be more accountable. And I think that is so important. And so we are focusing on that because I think this is a, a good bill that brings us back to really focusing on a student's education. School uh, starts again in about a month. Will the classrooms be ready? And I mean that physically, but also emotionally, psychologically, you name it. We are working hard to support boards. Um, during this time, boards normally sort of get ready for the new new school year, putting in place teachers and supports that are needed. And so we think we will be ready uh, we are working with school boards to support them in anything that they do need to complete and be ready for students. We're just excited that students will be back in school and back in class. Patrice Barnes, MPP Ajax mm -hmm. and Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Education, thank you for your time on the feed. Thank you so much, Anne. Have a great day. And you as well. Thank you. After the break, coming up next on the feed, protecting your vehicle from theft. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. In recent weeks, there have been several reports of car thefts and carjackings here in York Region and right across the GTA. What are you doing to prevent your vehicle from being stolen? As Glenn Perkins discovered, it's probably not enough. A new report from CAA reveals that car thefts are a major concern for owners. Elliot Silverstein is Director of Government Relations for CAA Insurance. He outlines the major concerns of the survey's respondents. So what we found in, the, in our survey is that nearly half of Ontarians are concerned about 
the issue of auto theft. What's really concerning is that that number increases to 57% in the greater Toronto area. So people are really concerned about the issue of vehicle theft. What was telling in our survey is that only about 30% are actually worried about their own particular vehicle being at risk of being stolen. And what that tells us is there's a bit of a false sense of security happening here is that people are generally concerned about the, the issue itself, but that it won't happen in their backyard. Did they say what measures they would like to see implemented to prevent or reduce vehicle thefts? Well, in in general, what we're seeing is that a lot of consumers are doing some of the traditional pieces. They're locking their cars and they're keeping uh, items out of sight in their cars. But what we need to see and what we're hoping to educate people to do is to take additional measures. And that is using things like a ferret box to store your key fob so that it blocks the signals. It's using anti-theft deterrents such as a steering wheel lock to try and make it harder to access your vehicle. I mean, nobody wants to experience a situation where they wake up and they find that their car is gone. And, you know, while we we look at the broader issues of how do we stop this this situation from happening, we want to encourage consumers to take the time and, and do their homework to take the precautions they need to keep their car as safe as possible. I always lock my car. It has an alarm feature. And I guess that's the basic auto theft prevention. But you're telling me that's really not enough? It really isn't enough. I mean, that, 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 is, that is standard. But if you have a garage, for example, and you're not using it to store your vehicle, that's an immediate opportunity. If you have multiple vehicles in your driveway, if you're not doing it right now, there's an opportunity to take the lesser valued vehicle in your household and put it closer to the boulevard, which then makes it harder for a thief to access that higher risk vehicle. There's certain things that people can do immediately, just changing certain behaviors to, to do that and, and, and bring that forward because we want to minimize the risk as much as possible. We talk about car thefts either being taken from the parking lot at the grocery store or from the driveway, but more recently we're hearing about carjackings not only in York Region but across the GTA. Was that a topic that came up in the survey? We didn't focus specifically on carjackings itself. We looked at more the issue of vehicles being stolen. But certainly, you know, that is, that is another situation that is out there. And we want to make sure people are keeping themselves as safe as possible at all times. You touched on some of those safety tips. Just tell me a few others that we should be considering. So there's different pieces that people can do. So if, if you, again, if you have a garage and a driveway, perhaps looking at installing motion sensors to try and alert people if somebody's walking on your premises, uh, install cameras potentially. You know, again, people are in, are in different types of rushes, running into stores, not realizing that it could only take a split second. So changing the habits of leaving your vehicle running, even for a moment to run inside somewhere. Also sharing information with law enforcement. If you feel that somebody is surveying your area, let police know because you want to provide that information to try and prevent things from happening. Even looking at at issues like storing an air tag in your vehicle to try and identify where your car is. All these different pieces can be part of a broader solution. The important part here is that there's no one single item right now that will solve the problem and it really should be tailored to what your situation is, whether you're on the road or at home. But everybody needs to do their part to try and minimize these incidents from happening. And the examples that you've just given, they're very simple changes that we can make in our life. It's not like it's a major thing that we have to go out and buy. They're not major changes. I mean, again, certain options are more costly if you want to look at various anti-theft deterrents that you could go out and purchase. But again, we're, we're talking from the basics of really trying to educate people to make sure that they're taking all the precautions that they can in their everyday life. And that is that is step one. So while we look at the issues about why vehicles are being stolen or how, how to make the, the security a bit tight, 
tighter on your vehicles. Those are longer term solutions. You know, law enforcement is doing their part to try and crack down on some of these these crime rings. That's going to take some time as well. But in the meantime, all drivers can do their part to try and reduce the risk on their own particular vehicles. Elliot Silverstein, Director of Government Relations for CAA Insurance. Thank you for sharing this information with our listeners today. You are listening to 105.9 The Region. Our next couple of stories focus on your money. First, Kevin Frankish with those planning a career change. A new survey confirms that the employment scene in Canada is still in a state of flux and change. Almost half of those who responded to the survey say they are looking for or plan to look for a new job before the end of the year. Now, this is having an impact on employees and employers. Michael French is national director for the Robert Half Company, joins me right now. Michael, uh, this this is something I think unprecedented. The, the, the job market that we see right now? job market is, I think you're right, Kevin, the job market is really, really strong. We're still seeing lots of optimism. We're in the last, you know, soon to be the last four months of the year. Summer's half over. And we're seeing very high numbers of people, 41% saying that they plan to make a change for the end of the year. And as we took about, we looked at sort of different segments and demographics, um, Gen Zers, 64%, these are the 18, 26-year-olds, they're saying, I plan to find a new job before the end of the year. And so that was our biggest cohort. And the other ones, this isn't a, necessarily a generation of age group, but it's people at the company two to four years saying at 56% that they want to change. And part of this comes down to maybe this, this group started over COVID. So maybe they were onboarded through a very troubling time. And they're saying, I've been here two or three years. I want some change or I want a promotion. And if you haven't spoken to this cohort, it's time to, because we know they're saying, I want to change as well before the end of the year. And so the last group, this one really surprised me. So I don't often talk about this group, but it's working parents. And it could be part of that same group that two to four years of the company, but over half of them are saying, as a working parent, I want to make a change as well before the end of the year. And working parents, my goodness, they, they could be Gen Zers, they could be Gen Y, they could be um, Gen Xers as well, but that's a cohort that definitely is saying they want to make a change as well. So there's lots happening out here. So we need to realize, or employers out there need to realize that there is a good chance a number of their staff right now are actively looking for a new job. What's more important for employers now? Because this is, again, brave new world. What's more important for employers right now? How to retain that current employee they have, how to find out if they're happy or make them happier, uh, perhaps to, to offer a hybrid work uh, lifestyle, or to, to go out and find the right talent, and how do they do that? So both are important. It is always easier to retain your great people versus try to find more. But I can tell you, people right now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed prices are up, and number one thing every cohort says, salary is the most important mm. thing. That's, that's over half of them, that's 55%. But then it drops down substantially. So we know money's important. And that's the people who are in the job now and trying to attract. You may find if you're trying to attract, it costs even more money. But then it drops down to benefits and perks. And benefits and perks, and that was a remote option. So you mentioned hybrid. And so now we're sitting at just over a quarter. So it's substantially less than the salary. But my goodness, some of this can come in 
may not cost you a lot, but be appreciated by a number of your people. And it could be how much vacation time you're offering, could be remote or hybrid. And I'd say if you, if you want to talk flexibility, maybe it's beyond where you sit. Maybe it's the hours you're keeping or flexibility on hours or would you want to work four days a week versus five? So that flexibility may not have a big cost for companies, but it may be really appreciated for a person in the seat who's thinking, do I make a change? If, you're, uh, if there's some pretty good things happening in your current job, you may put that job search on hold and enjoy, enjoy some of those new perks that are coming to you in your current job. And, and we're noticing a lot of employers are having trouble getting their people back to the office. And some of them are getting adamant, demanding they get back to the office and new hires emphasizing this is not hybrid work. You will be on location for this. Do you think employers are fighting the hybrid work, work lifestyle a little too much? You know what? This is, uh, this is the current question of the day. A um, year and a half ago, we were all very comfortable, companies and people, um, working hybrid or remote. But we're, we're hearing a lot now for some pretty big companies, sometimes some very big famous CEOs are saying, get your butt back to the office. It's, it's coming on pretty strong. And there, we're hearing a lot of people saying, unfortunately, I'm not going back. I'm prepared to leave. So it's a bit of a teeter-totter. I don't know how this is going to play out, but we do hear every single day more companies saying back to the office. Now, that does not mean in many cases it's got to be like the old way, like 2019. There could be some flexibility. There, there could be maybe some hours or maybe it looks a little different. But we know there is a lot of push right now from companies saying back to the office. And, you know, and part of that could be the fact that um, we have some great use of how we're going to use the office now. Maybe the days of offices full of rows of people have gone, and maybe now it's we have more collaboration spaces. But maybe it's also back to the office, not to do the work, but to do something different. Maybe it's back to the office for training, back to the office for collaboration, collision spaces where you meet with different teams or meeting clients or colleagues. I think we have to look differently about how we use the office. You may have a better workstation home for doing the typical work, but there may actually be a better way to use the office. I think that's the future of, of the office space now. Now, the survey showing as well that, that those just coming into midlife are the ones who are the most restless, uh, per se, the Gen Zers. What, what can we take away from the, from the fact that this... I, what the, the sort of the mainstay of the labor force out there, the middle-aged, what can we take away from this that they seem to be the most restless? Well, so this is a group that is now just accelerating into leadership, into sometimes some very senior management positions. We're now finally, it's been the long goodbye to boomers for the last, oh my goodness, I'm a Gen Xer, so it's been sort of the 30-year goodbye to the boomers. They've been around for a long time. We're now seeing them stepping back from some very senior leadership positions, letting Xers step up. It's creating a lot of opportunity for people. But there's so much more now to work. We, we want to make sure that our people have leadership, and they're feeling mentored, and they're feeling supported. Long gone are the days where it was just the job. Now it's, uh, now it's actually part of our lives. And companies need to actually realize there could be some pressures going on in people's lives, and it may not be from work, but they're the ones who are now responsible for making sure people are successful. So there's lots happening out there. There's lots of movement, and the movement's going to continue. 
Well, you you have some great research, I know, on um, the job search, and we are unfortunately out of town right now. Let's get together again and let's talk about, okay, so you're looking for a job. It's 2023. It's not the same as it was in 1983. And uh, maybe uh, give people an idea of how important LinkedIn is, how important their resume is, what needs to be on them, what, what, what they should be knowing about their own social media accounts, things like that. Can we do that? Absolutely, Kev. That's a great idea. Can't wait to chat again. All right. Uh, Michael French, National Director of the Robert Half Company. Next, as Jim Lang tells us, parents are increasingly concerned about their child's financial future. Well, money is obviously a big topic of conversation for everyone in Canada. And our friends at TD did a survey that found that nearly three in five Canadians, 58%, and their parents frequently worry about their kids' financial future. And as a parent, I know all about that. I'm thrilled to be joined by Emily Ross, who's TD's VP of Everyday Advice Journey. And this is a journey that we're all on right now. Emily, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Of course, Jim. Thanks for having me. Uh, and I'm not surprised at the number, 58%. I'm a parent. Uh, my partner and I have kids in the university. And we wonder. We wonder about their financial future, about renting and buying a house and saving. Because we struggle with it. And we wonder how they are going to do it. Absolutely. You're definitely not alone. Jim, I'm a parent too. My kids are a lot earlier in the journey. They're four and six. Um, and I worry about the same things for them and also worry about, just, like many Canadian parents, building even the more financial fundamentals to see them through those university years. See, now this is where I think a, a, a bank like TD can help because as a parent, I'm like, I don't have answers, but maybe my my financial advisor, my bank manager, my financial expert at my local TD branch can help me and help me educate my children. And, you know, you're not alone in, in feeling that way. One of the things our survey found was actually close to 70% of Canadian parents don't feel prepared to support their kids' financial literacy at home. Um, and they're not actually talking about it at home. Only 29% of Canadian parents are discussing finances with their child weekly. And you're absolutely right. The banks are here to help. TV's here to help. Um, the advisors are super well prepared to, to not only talk to parents about how they can build their children's financial literacy, but we're also ready to welcome youth and kids into the branches. Um, at TD, we recently launched an entire in-branch youth experience to make banking more fun and accessible for kids. Um, and have lots of tools to, to build financial literacy along the way. Well, full, full disclosure, I'm a longtime TD client, my partner and I and my Thank kids, and, but I had next to zero financial knowledge before I got married. And so I needed the people at TD to educate me so we can help educate the kids because, I mean, they're far more advanced when it comes to finances than when I was at their age. Yeah, the world keeps getting more complicated, it seems, and... Uh, you know, I think, you know, whether the kids are, are younger like mine or older like yours, there's lots of different ways to engage them in ways that are, you know, for younger kids fun and for all kids practical um, in building that knowledge. And, um, and uh, at TV, our frontline staff, our branch advisors, they, uh, they think about this day in and day out. They talk to parents, they talk to youth, um, and they, uh, they can share lots of ideas on how to do that. 
Now, this is one part of the survey that's not a surprise to me because my partner and I both talk about growing up and our respective parents never talk to us about personal finances and money. And it's 60% of Canadian parents claim they made mistakes with finances due to a lack of financial education in their own childhood. Yeah. No, that was a, it was a surprising stat to me too. And, um, you know, I think, uh, they're also worried, uh, 35% of them are worried that, you know, their children are going to make the same, sorry, only a third of them actually feel their children are prepared to not make the same financial mistakes that they made. Um, and so it's, it's very much rightfully on their minds. And I think as a, as a parent, I mean, you got through some of those maybe really busy young years, but you know, bigger kids, big problems also. And it's just hard to know where to start, right? We, we have so much on our minds. You're thinking about how are you paying for the groceries this week? How are you saving for your children's education? You're dealing with all of the stresses of kids in school and extracurriculars um, with your own job. It's just hard to find the time to start or know where to start. Um, and so I always like to tell, tell parents, just incorporate it into your everyday routine. You could start small. It could feel really insurmountable if you think you have to solve everything and teach them everything at once. Um, but you know, one thing that we love to do is uh, when we go grocery shopping, um, planning the week's groceries together, even with my six-year-old, and, and saying, what's our budget for the week? And what do we want to eat? And Let's look at some of the flyers and see what the different prices are. And just start to even understand what does a loaf of bread cost? What does a bag of milk cost? Um, just starting small and incorporating it into your everyday um, could actually build quite a lot of fundamentals, you know, with, with the younger kids especially. That, that's a fantastic idea. I never thought about that, Emily. And I, I know our daughters in their early 20s and both them and their respective friends have really got into thrifting. And they come home after thrifting going, mm. You know, mom, dad, look at these jeans. Look at this jacket. Look at the shirt I got for next to nothing. And they're all excited that they saved money and got something cool. That's a, that's an awesome idea. Actually, when, when, one piece of advice or a little game that you can play with older kids, maybe younger teenagers, is you know, how many hours of work will it take to buy that $100 pair of jeans? Oh, and what's yeah. the plan that you want to put in place to really understand, you know, how much it takes to be able to buy the brand new jeans and you know, I think that the thrift thing could be a good extension of it, right? To then say, well, now let's go to a thrift store and what kind of jeans can you get for 5 or $10? And what's the difference between a need and a want? And, you know, where do you want to save and where do you want to spend? I think showing them kind of the options and the value of the dollar can be, it doesn't have to be in a, um, in a, you know, punitive way mm-hmm. or in a overly lecturing way, right? By finding ways to make it fun. I agree. Speaking with Emily Ross, VP of Everyday Advice, joining a TD about this fascinating survey about parents and their kids and and finances. And I, I, I mean, looking at your numbers and crunching your numbers, are are we better as Canadian parents than we were ten years ago, or is it still a slow journey to educate our kids to financial knowledge? Well, I don't know for sure if we're better or worse, but for sure, Canadian parents are concerned, and I think they probably. Um, feel more pressures today than they have in the past. Um, and it's definitely an ongoing journey to, uh, to balance all the tensions and priorities that we have. And, uh, and building financial fundamentals is clearly important to Canadian parents. Well, Emily, I, I'm going to ask you, as a Canadian parent with kids about to enter the workforce, 
and possibly rent on their own or buy on their own. Where do we start to help them? How can we help them? Well, I think, you know, uh, starting, it's never too early to start talking to your kids about finances. And then um, as it, it's also never too late. And so if you're uh, one of the many Canadian parents who have kids who are older teens, who are in university, um, as yours are about to enter the workforce, I think it's just having, making the time to have those real and honest conversations, uh, taking them to a branch if you would feel the support would be helpful, either um, technically or emotionally, and helping mm. them work through things like budget, um, helping them think about what kind of life they want to have and therefore what does that mean for the income that they would need to support it or starting with the income that they're likely to have and working through, well, what would that mean for a budget? You know, I think the concepts of credit are very important. I think, you know, when students turn 18 in Ontario, they're eligible for a credit card. I think helping them understand um, what credit means, um, how to use credit responsibly, and then the benefits of actually building a credit score early are really important. And I think, you know, we have some complicated uh, registered investing and savings products in Canada. I think going and talking to a financial advisor at age 18, 19, 20, and understanding um, the differences between TFSAs and RSPs and the new first-time homebuyer savings account um, and, and how to think about those limited dollars that most people have to save at that age and where you can help them grow, um, grow the most for the future. Um, are all great conversations to have with, you know, late teens and early 20s kids. Emily, I think in closing, I'm, yep. I want to bring up something. I was really bad with credit cards in my 20s, and it took me a while to figure it out and pay it off and get out of that. And you alluded to it, that the credit rating and kids in their late teens, early 20s, how important it is A, to get a credit rating, but B, make sure you're paying it off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, how to use credit and how to use it to build a positive and helpful uh, credit score and history is, uh, is, is to be invaluable for your future. Emily, I can't even thank you enough. The survey is fascinating. Your information is invaluable. If people want more information on what TD can do for them and their, their children and their kids, where can they go? Just come into any TD branch. We're here to help you, and we're ready with some great experiences for you. Emily, thank you so much. All the best the rest of the summer, and uh, thank you for educating us. All right. Have a great summer. After the break, what's new, Pussycat? Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Well, here's what's new, Pussycat, a feline-only vet clinic boasting state-of-the-art technology and all of the kitty creature comforts you can think of. Welcome, Dr. Scott Bainbridge. Your idea, the concept, it sounds perfect, and I mean that P-U-R-R-fect, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) We're having fun with this. So tell me where this idea came from and why you think it's important. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, and there's, um, there's about 8 million dogs in Canada. Believe it or not, there's more cats. There's about 8.5 million cats. And the one stat we learned, and we see this reflected in practice. So 
of those uh, eight million, eight and a half million dogs, eight and a half million cats, the, the the percentage of dogs that have been to the vet in the last year is about eighty six percent, but the percentage of cats is only sixty percent, and so. We're trying to figure out why aren't people bringing their cats to the vet? Are they not getting sick? And no, I think they get sick just as often as dogs. But I think just it's so stressful to get a cat into a vet clinic. And so people don't want to bring them in until the very last possible second. And that makes it even more difficult for us because they're quite sick by the time we see them. So let's talk about feline care. Why is it so different from canine care? Well, I mean, two very unique species. So, I mean, well, the, the the illnesses that dogs get and cats get are very, very different from one another. And and cats are a very different creature. They they tend to not be as social as dogs, and they just I don't know. I find they can uh, they they're a little more predisposed to stress than than what the dogs would be. So let's talk about the clinic. It's open and it's raring to go. What are you doing to make the experience stress-free for our furry feline friends? Well, and this will be the, the third animal hospital I've built from, from the ground up kind of thing. And this one, you know, you, you learn from your mistakes. And the one thing we did for this one was we really put a ton of research into it. And so when you open a cat-only facility, you just have to think of like, okay, what the cats like and what don't they like, you know, what's going what's gonna to make this the less stressful thing. So from the layout of the building to the lighting of the building to the smells and the sounds in the building, even right down to the temperature that we keep the, the building at is going to be slightly different than how, how, we'd, uh, how we'd build a dog and a cat clinic together. Can we explain that? So the hospital layout, what's different from what we normally see? So the the interesting thing is we're we're doing our best with our exam rooms to have the the doors frosted because cats they're not a big fan of dogs which we're obviously not going to see in a cat only clinic but they're not necessarily a fan of other cats as well so there'll be a little more privacy there the exam rooms themselves are going to be uh, we'll have little hidey areas too because when cats come into their carriers and once I've examined them they 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 don't like being out in the open so we've got these little kind of like nesting areas where they can go and kind of be a little less anxious in there um, our exam rooms have a pheromone diffuser in them that relaxes cats as well. Uh, we've really uh, worked hard on the soundproofing in the rooms, um, even right down to the wall colors. Like we didn't mm-hmm. realize there's certain there's certain colors that, that cats don't like. Uh, for instance, orange is not their favorite color. We went with more of a bluey green kind of uh, calming look, and apparently that is supposed to be much better for cats. And also lighting. Do they like dim lighting, or do they like it nice and bright? <laughs> Yeah, no, they, they actually like it a little bit dimmer. And the nice thing is, I mean, I think every cat's different, but we've got dimmer switch on, switches on every examiner, so we can actually cater to the individual cat at that point. And then we've got these really specific uh, cages that we have for cats as well, and they are like um, climate climate controlled. So they uh, we can we can warm them, we can uh, uh, we can frost the glass so they can have privacy in there as well. So we've like we've pretty well thought of everything at this point. And the the one thing again is a standalone cat clinic that. We'll never be a dog in that clinic. We have our own dentistry. We have our own surgery. Um, even, even our employees that will be working that day won't be working at the dog and the cat hospital together. Like Nobody's going to smell like a dog when they come in there. <laughs> you work like a dog, but you're not going to smell like one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and you mentioned temperature. Let's talk about that. I, it's my understanding that cats were originally bred in Egypt, if I'm not mistaken, that they love yeah. hot temperatures. Correct. Yeah, is, is they're they're desert animals. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's it's a challenge to get the temperature appropriate for a cat and also appropriate for your employees who are going to be working yeah. hard in there at the same time too. So uh, that's why we went with these climate controlled cages so we can actually uh, uh, cater to the cat specifically at that point.
And here's the most intriguing aspect of all of this, the sounds, the music. I understand that cats respond to certain types of music. Yeah, it's interesting. So we, 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 you know, we've heard initially that cats like classical music, and then we heard that cats like reggae music. And so, um, but there was a big study done just recently, and uh, there's actually a, a gentleman who's a cellist for the uh, the Washington D.C. Symphony Orchestra, and uh, he's put together an album cat. Cat music is pretty well what it is, and it's almost like a combination of classical. But you hear birds chirping and cats purring throughout the uh, the production. It's, it's pretty impressive. And the scientific studies have shown that the cats that listen to this type of music were much easier for the veterinarians to handle. So they uh, seemed less stressed during the entire procedure. So so we will be playing the uh, the cat friendly music throughout the clinic while they're there. There's going to be a feline medicine specialist there to complement the quality of medicine provided that's a good idea but what exactly is that yeah so a couple of our vets have gone on and done extra training specifically in feline medicine so so they've got that kind of extra bit of knowledge and the nice thing is because i've now got 15 veterinarians working at dundas west so uh, these specific vets are actually now helping to train my other vets as well and get us all up to speed in our uh, in our feline specialties What's been the response so far? I know that it's it's early stages in this cats-only clinic uh, that you've just opened, but what's been the response from both the kitty cats and, of course, the those who love their kitty cats? Yeah, so far so good. So from the client end of things, like people are thrilled that they're not sitting in a waiting room with a dog barking at their cat for 10 or 15 minutes before they get into their appointment. So so I think that's made everybody really happy. It's a brand new climate con- controlled facility, so that's really nice as well. The cats seem to be very chilled out when they're coming in. I don't know if it's just by imagination, but they do seem a lot better than they have been in the traditional clinic. So 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 far so good. Excellent. Dr. Scott Bainbridge, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. I think it sounds great. In fact, I think my Harry, my 16-year-old kitty cat, he and I may be paying you a visit very very soon. Sounds great. (laughs) Sounds great, Anne. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. To find out more about the Cats Only Clinic, go to dundaswestvets.com. Next, going to the movies may be more than an escape. Shaliza back is now with The Barbie Effect. The Barbie movie is well on its way to making a billion dollars, and that's extremely possible after this long weekend. We've been seeing all pink everything around the globe, and it's not like Barbie hasn't existed since 1959. So what exactly makes this movie so special? Joining me now to discuss this cultural phenomenon is Sarah Mars, deputy editor of Laney Gossip. How are you, Sarah? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. So first of all, we want your honest opinion. What did you think of the Barbie movie? I really liked it. It's so weird and surreal to think that it's a mainstream movie. It's a corporate brand movie. It really feels like Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie and everyone involved got away with something. I think it's fair to to levy the criticism that it's a little bit feminism 101 but I, I also had the fortunate opportunity to see the film with a friend and her 12-year-old daughter. And the way that it struck her daughter, I was like, yeah, it's okay if grown adults think the messaging is a little simplistic because it's probably the first time young women, young girls are absorbing some of the conflicting messages, some of the double standards of the world. And this is giving them a way to process it and understand that those things aren't okay 
And I think one of the most important facets of the message that has been overlooked, but the reason it might be resonating so hard is that you might not be able to change everything, but you can try. I think we need that right now. And I think there's an optimism to that message. Absolutely. And that actually brought me to my next question because I've been seeing, you know, videos and TikToks all over the place where it's like the Barbie movie made me hate men. And that's obviously coming from a lot of like straight women. Do you actually think that's the case or is that just a generalization? I think that will get you clout in certain corners of the Internet. (laughs) I don't think it's a man hating movie at all. In fact, I think if you think that the way the Kens are treated is BS, good because they're treated in barbie land like women are treated in the real world and i saw somebody point out i wish i could remember who it was because it was an excellent point that ken's job is just beach the way that women's jobs in the era especially when the first barbie was introduced was just house so if you think that is not okay if you want more and better for the kens great That means you should be wanting more and better for women in the real world. And it also, again, kind of to the feminism 101 thing is truly at its core, feminism is the belief that in the social, legal, and financial equality of men and women, that is it. It is not that one is better than the other or deserves more. It's that we are just equal. Also, I don't know how you could come out of that movie hating men because the Kens are so goofy and delightful. And Alan is the secret MVP of the movie. Um, And I think if that is truly how you feel, maybe that's something to take up with a licensed therapist because this is a really goofy, silly movie. And its messaging is very simple and very basic on the level of we should all be getting more and better from the world and treating each other a little bit better that is the best message ever. I think that really is the take home. And I mean, like I said, it's not like Barbie never existed before. It's not like there's never been a Barbie project before. So what is it now that is driving people to the theater? It's it's making all this money. Is it Greta Gerwig? Is it the cast, the insane marketing or all of the above? I don't know. I think it is all of the above. Marketing was very on point. And it turned into a cultural phenomenon with everybody wearing pink, everybody dressing up. I saw it twice and both times the crowds were just to the nines dressed up. The Oppenheimer crowds are dressing in period like vintage clothes (laughs) as well. So that was really fun to bounce from one screening to the next and see everyone dressed up for Oppenheimer. But I think it's a little bit, it just became that infectious thing. We've seen that with like Black Panther, um, where people really get into the sort of complete cultural moment. I also think just coming out of the pandemic, we saw with Top Gun Maverick last year, people just like going to the movies. It's actually not dead. People like theaters. (laughs) You just have to give them something that feels fresh. But I also think something that feels optimistic because coming out of the pandemic, I do think people are looking for a little bit of escapism and a little bit of feel good. Barbie gives you a feeling of, I mean, you laugh so much and you walk out just feeling effervescent. And if you are thinking about the deeper themes, you're thinking about things like better equality and better standards of treating each other better. Like the Ken's, I mean, when Ken goes into the real world and thinks he's being treated with respect, he's really just being shown common courtesy. But it shows how important it is to sort of observe just those simple social niceties, which feel like they have gone out the window recently in terms of just kind of greasing the wheels of your day. And maybe you do end up in a slightly better mood because somebody was just mildly polite to you in the elevator. 
I really, I really like the references that you're making. Honestly, like it just makes so much sense. And I want to go back to a point that you said, like the cultural impact of this movie. I think it's a lasting impact. And who knows, there may even be a course in like post-secondary institutions, like dissecting this at some point. Why do you think it's got such a lasting cultural impact? I think it's partially for the same reason that superhero movies dominated for a decade. Barbie's been around a long time. There's a multi-generational fan base. There are adults like my friend taking their children, like her 12-year-old. She grew up playing with Barbies. Her daughter has Barbies. Um, I think the movie did a good job courting the non-Barbie crowd, kind of acknowledging some of the complicated history of Barbie and the mixed feelings towards Barbie. But I think it really just comes down to the very simple thing that also has for comic book movies and superheroes and stuff, which is decades of culture presence. So you have that multi-generational fan base to grow out of. I love that. And as you said, you saw the movie twice. So for people who may not have seen it yet, I mean, there may not be a, a lot of them, but there are a few who still haven't seen it. What would you recommend the kind of mindset to go into the movie with? It's at heart just a silly, fun movie about friendship. It's really a friendship is magic message. I'm truly baffled by the people who are claiming to be angry um, because I don't know how you can spend two hours looking at bubblegum pink everything and then feel bad about anything after. I, you know what movie it truly reminds me of? I was trying to kind of sell it to a coworker who was a little bit iffy about seeing it. And I was like, you know what? It's Anchorman for women with pink. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same kind of just completely like, how is this working? Why does this work? That's the dumbest joke I've ever heard, but I'm laughing so hard. I truly think that's why they cast Will Ferrell in it. I think there was an intentionality to bridge that like anchorman gap because it really is in the same spirit of just it's silly, it's weird, it shouldn't work, but it does. And the production design, the artistic design, the costume design, it looks so nice. You think you're going to get sick of the pink and you don't because everything is so beautiful. And I do think, again, people like going to the movies. People like being wowed. And there's a huge wow factor. Love that. Love that so much. So that's definitely something to do this long weekend. Maybe see it for a second or third time or the first time. We don't know. But the Barbie movie is definitely going to have a lasting cultural impact. Sarah Mars, deputy editor of Laney Gossip. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.